Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, how one complaint against Naga Manchetti cast doubt on the BBC's judgment, why adverts work better in podcasts than on telly, and how the royals are taking on the tabloids. Plus, what do our guests make of the BBC's attempt to do for speech what introducing did for music? And in the Media Quiz, we celebrate the British winners at the 71st Emmy Awards. It's all to come on today's Media Podcast. And joining me today, Secretary of Trade Body Audio UK and presenter of the, may I say, excellent monthly editions uh, labelled Roundtable of the Radio Today programme, Trevor Dan. Hello, Hello Trevor. Hello, Ollie. Uh, now, Audio UK are kind of in cahoots with the Audio Content Fund, aren't they? Oh, cahoots makes it sound like something to do with the mafia. No, the Audio UK lobbied the government to get some money to put into independent production for commercial radio because as you know commercial radio doesn't have a lot of programming investment and uh, whereas the BBC does and so here's a way that we as producers can as it were pre-sell by work by whatever conversation with a radio station in the commercial sector an idea they want but can't afford we go jointly to the audio content fund and they announce three times a year that they've uh, allocated some money so you successfully lobbied for that and it's now a thing and there's now a second round of money that's been distributed to new programs exactly and the company that i'm working with folder and co has fortunately got some money congratulations on this occasion so we're going to make a little series of packages about diversity and opportunity in british theater to run on magic. Wow. Which is the sort of thing that they would love to do, but they don't have the money to do. And I think they they might say that they haven't got the expertise. I think they probably do have the expertise, but they don't have the time uh, to do this kind of programming. And here is some money coming in um, to grant fund us to make this high-quality audio for them. But is there an innate contradiction in commercial radio basically saying, look, we'd like to have this, but we can't do it because, I mean, really what it means is it wouldn't make any money, but then the point of commercial radio is you get an audience <laughs> that make money for the station. Well, that's your view, um, but it, it, it isn't ours. I think it, it faces up to the reality that commercial radio does not invest huge amounts of money in programming. It invests a lot of money these days, not so much years ago, but these days in new formats, new launches, new stations, but actually in employing producers, well, not so much. But what we do is we have producers, we have talent who can make stuff for them. I think it's a a virtuous circle. 
And, uh, well, you've brought us straight back to our studio setting, a virtuous circle indeed, uh, at the other end of the table. Uh, senior analyst at Edelman and host of Primarily 2020, Karen Robinson's back on the show. Hello, Karen. Hello, Ollie. Welcome back. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm curious how the focus of Primarily, which is all about the Democratic primaries, has changed since the word impeachment became uh, fashionable. Again. Um, that's a good question. Well, so my uh, last week I had to do two episodes, one about impeachment and one about everything else. <laughs> Um, or I'd rather one about the campaign. Um, but I think it's it's actually, so the podcast talks about, we say, the personality, politics and policies of the, of the primary. Um, so personalities have always been a part of it. And the president himself is a part of the political landscape as it has been. I think it's really important, though, and this more gets into the type of commentary that you'll hear on the podcast. I think it's really important that Democrats be thoughtful about a specialization of labor here. Um, while Congress is doing impeachment, which is important work, um, and presidential candidates need to be saying, of course, um, what they think about impeachment and, and making clear that the president is a threat to the national security of America. But the candidates also need to get their own messages out. They still need to be talking about health care. They need to be talking about economic insecurity. Um, and that's exactly what they're doing. So I think every candidate except Joe Biden um, has, a, has a story to tell and that Joe Biden, because he's tied up in the scandal, he needs to be a little bit more direct in engaging with it. But weirdly, you'll probably see a ratings boost, won't you, because of this story? And actually, people are tuning in to hear about impeachment, and yet you're saying, oh, they should be talking about all the other policies instead. Uh, I don't know. So am I, am I getting a ratings boost? No, from impeachment. No, because uh, there are other people who speak much more inflammatory language about the president. So part of my whole point of the show is to have a space where Democrats can talk about things that aren't just the president, um, because he soaks up too much of our media oxygen. So I'm trying to make sure that we have a space to talk about the many, many important things that we need to have as a conversation. So that's kind of what the whole podcast is about. So um, our numbers are not soaring on that basis, but I, I still feel good about sticking with the strategy of what we're doing. You get the right amount of acknowledging that we're dealing with an imminent threat to our national security in the form of the president of the United States. Kind of an important story in its own right, and then the right amount of everything else happening in the world. Okay, and uh, last but not least, we're joined by the very definition of a ratings bump. It is Wee. the MD of Production House Gold Waller, Faraz Osman. Hey, Ollie, how you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Tell us about the Rise and Shine podcast pitching event you were just involved in. Oh, yeah, so I got invited to this, and um, as I've mentioned before here, we are doing our first podcast, even though... Technically, we started as a video company, but now we are fully a content company. Welcome to the multiplayer. Thank you future. very much. Um, and uh, and I think that our understanding of pitching uh, to national broadcasters as well as brands, etc., there was a, a there's been a lot of crossover, and I think that podcasting in particular are uh, looking to get a better understanding of what you need to do to entice. The, the the wallets and the purse strings of, uh, of broadcasters, brands and, and the like um, and make sure you can kind of unlock some of that dollar bills. Um, and I kind of think that it's that there's a lot of crossover and the thing that I, I generally try to do before I walk into any pitch is, you know, sometimes we get briefs, sometimes we are pitching in cold, but we try to identify a problem. We try to figure out why uh, our solution is the best way to solve that problem. Um, and then we have to convince people why we are the best people to solve that problem. And I think if you can get those three things right, then uh, then hopefully you're in a good chance of actually winning some work. So in when you say identify a problem, does that include coming up with the, the whole idea, the whole concept of a podcast? You're saying there's there's a, a need to listen to this thing right now. Yeah, I mean, we I, I was, when I was 
in, in my younger days, um, I, I got taught um, that it was about the main intention question. So you're trying, to, you're trying to offer a question and then create enough curiosity around that question that it requires programming and content around it. So for instance, who is Alan Sugar's next apprentice going to be? Uh, who is going to win the Democratic 2020 primary? You know, it needs to be a big question that lots of people want to know the answer to. And then you need to demonstrate why you can help build that curiosity and, and ultimately give a really good, solid answer to that. So um, so that's, I think, is ev- how we should be approaching pitching. Um, but I think that what a lot of people forget is, even though you may have an incredible idea and it, it may be really exciting to you or uh, and you feel like it definitely needs to be made, one of the unwritten things, and a lot of people don't say this, is that you, you actually need to prove why you are the people to make that mm. story as well. Because there are, there are, I think, I've always said this, if I've had an idea... The likelihood is, is that 100 people before me have had the same idea as well. I need to demonstrate why the way that my approach or my company's approach or the, the creatives that I have who are building something are, are able to answer that question in a way that's more exciting than anyone else. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it, Trevor? You're not going to have been the first person to approach Magic and said, let's do a thing about musical theatre. Oh, yes, we were. <laughs> <laughs> Just okay. I would say no, we know, that. but that's Panto. I think the interesting thing that's going on now is that a lot of those big brands, those big corporate entities... And those agencies who we all went to a few years ago and said, would you like a podcast? Went, what do you mean? What, are, what the hell's that? And even if they'd heard of them, they would say, well, you've got no data. You can't prove that you have any listeners at all. Those very people have suddenly done the U-turn and they're going, hey, you know, my neighbour's got a podcast and I haven't. Can I have one? And, you know, talent, every actor, everybody in Love Island, everybody wants their own podcast and companies seem to be more willing to fund them than they were. And I think that's behind this week's news about three guys from Wise Buddha, the big audio production company, uh, buying Wise Buddha Creative and launching this new company called Listen. And their whole thing is, you know, audio is expanding and we're out there and we're pitching to, you know, to this glorious new um, future. Okay. Uh, glorious new future aside, let's talk about the big BBC story of the week, as is tradition on this show. <laughs> it's been an elephant in the room in everyone's uh, podcast, so we have to do it too, uh, which is, of course... Uh, the Naga Manchetti. Should we call it a row? I don't dare call it a race row. Uh, she had a partially upheld complaint against her overturned by the Director General, no less. Um, there have been a lot of twists and turns on this story. Does anyone want to volunteer to actually explain to us what happened? It's a flipping mess. Go on then, Faraz. You spoke first. <laughs> the, ele- the elephant in the room kind of came into the room and did a massive Blue Peter-style <laughs> poo right in the middle of it. I, look, I think that this is a story that is... It, it's in two halves. The, the first is the you know the... the the actual complaint itself. And Which then, was what? What happened? And the content around it. Well, I think that that's kind of part of the problem. Okay. I think that they've done a really, really, uh, I don't want to say, I'm going to say bad, I'm going to say bad job. They've done a terrible job of explaining exactly how this has unfolded. What, what well, they were quite did, misleading about what actually happened. Yeah, and, 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 that's, and that's kind of become part of the story as well. But if you were to take all of the politics and everything away from it, my understanding of it, and I still haven't got a full grasp of it because it's so ridiculously unnecessarily complicated. My understanding of it is that the the BBC Breakfast Show, which is a personality-led news and current affairs show with presenters of whom they want to demonstrate their personality, started having a conversation off the back of a comment that um, our good friend President Donald Trump made around sending back people of colour. Well, 
sending back certain congresswomen back home. Uh, the squad. The for, squad. For congresswomen of colour, only one of whom was born outside the United States. Yeah, and it seemed, it seemed, it seemed quite clear to a lot of people that it was racially charged, to say the least. Um, and, uh, and Naga, as, as somebody who's a person of colour as well, has kind of has had similar comments made to, to me as well, talked about her experiences of, of that phrase of being, you know, go back home and, and what that means and how that makes you feel. And all of that seems to be okay. The bit that's been partially upheld... Okay, as in the BBC said she should be allowed to do that. That is her experience. This is my reading of the judgment, is that she's allowed to talk about racism and the fact that racism is wrong and the fact that racism is is a problem. Where it strayed into a breach of editorial guidelines is that she went on to to suggest that Donald Trump himself is racist. Mm -hmm. And by taking a view on a political figure and their opinion when there is no... When Donald Trump is saying, I'm not racist, I'm just saying it as it is, or whatever nonsense he's spouting out of his mouth that day. Um, she is giving an editorial opinion um, as somebody that needs to be remain independent. And that's where it gets really, really complicated. My whole thing around this is that people need to remember two things. One, they're called editorial guidelines, not editorial laws. So there should be a, a sense of... A, 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 some common sense when we are... Um, looking at these things to make sure that we understand the impact when when they make these judgments, and also this is a um, this is an issue that is becoming increasingly tricky when we have things like Twitter and we ha- are able to see these presenters having personalities elsewhere mm. um, because we know a lot of the time what the political leanings of a lot of journalists and broadcasters on different news networks are and they suddenly have to turn that off when they're on the BBC and that seems to be more and more disingenuous. Yeah, which seemed yeah. Uh, really apparent when Emily Maitlis, fellow BBC presenter, then on Twitter defended Naga Manchetti but then had to cover the story impartially on Newsnight <laughs> later in the week. I mean, that's a slightly bizarre thing, isn't it? Why can you say it on Twitter but not on the news. So I think I think there seems to be mass confusion now amongst BBC presenters themselves who are really unclear what their guidelines are. So I think the BBC has handled this almost as badly as is possible to. Um, but there are a couple of other twists and turns as well to this that it's worth that it's worth putting out there because when I say they were misleading about about what actually happened initially, their the BBC's argument for why they looked only at Naga and not at her co-presenter was that they'd only had a complaint against her and not him, even though he was the one who initially raised the subject and prompted the discussion. So this was for days, this was their argument, well, we we can only deal with the complaints we've had. Then it came out that the initial complaint was actually directed against both of them. So it's not true that they didn't have a complaint about both. And then only kind of later on, after they they kind of initially rejected the complaint, Gave the the woman came back a couple of times later and said, "Okay, I'm just directing my complaint at this presenter." So the whether it's well intentioned or not, the perspective that it looks like a complaint it was upheld only against a woman of color when she was talking about her personal lived experience of racism does not look good to say the least. I also think there's an interesting transatlantic difference here in terms of how we talk about the president's comments over the summer, um, because in the American media where Normally, the presidential statements are given a lot more deference. Um, That particular instance was one where there seemed to be a switching of the media narrative. And suddenly, you got CNN, you got MSNBC, you got major US broadcasters openly describing the president's comments as racist um, and saying there's no other way to describe these these comments and that therefore, because his comments were avowedly racist, you have to say that the president himself is a racist, which was a narrative in American media 
And it's interesting that the BBC took a more conservative approach to that than the, than the US media. But you say, Karen, that the, the, the BBC dealt with this very badly. I mean, Trevor, actually, the Director General Tony Hall at the end of this did step in and just overturn the overturning. So actually, Well, he did, point, although yeah. I'm not sure that in itself is a good thing. Because if you have an independent tribunal that is meant to consider complaints, you as the chief executive surely can't just overrule it. I mean, he was right to overrule it on this occasion. We know that. But they haven't fixed the process. But they haven't fixed the process. I mean, what is interesting for me is I I believe the best-selling baseball hat in BBC Salford is now saying N-A-G-A as opposed to M-A-G-A, which you would have uh, in... in um, Naga, America, great again. Yeah, it's going to happen. <laughs> um, but I, I think there's, um, th- there is a big issue here about how the BBC presents itself to its own consumers because it's having a real problem looking fair. And what they've done here is before it was overruled, they've gone for, uh, not because I'm racist, although I admit that the words I used were, and I don't think that holds up, does it, in, in the modern world? Look, I think that, that there are two there are two lasting impacts of this. I think that... the we'll hope talk about the media regulatory bit. I, I think the hope <laughs> that the BBC have is that they've now, that Tony Hall's made the statement he's made, that they put a lid on it. This should have been a one-day media story. This should have blown over within 24 hours. They made an absolute balls up of it, which had meant that it stayed in the press for longer, and that's why it continued to exacerbate. But the they think that they put a lid on this. I, I think that they have got real serious problems, both as BAME staff and uh, and how they feel, you know, on screen and off screen, how they feel represented within the, within the BBC. Yeah. That's going to be a problem. And the second problem they have, which I think is going to be a, a lasting problem, is people exploiting the BBC complaints procedure to make political gain, uh, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on. And I think if you look at our relationship with Ofcom that I think changed significantly since the launch of Big Brother, where people rush to complain to Ofcom because they see that as a way of interacting with the uh, with the media landscape as an, as an audience, you're going to start seeing that happen with the BBC complaints procedure. And they need to get this right because there, there could be a situation where they've opened some floodgates that they literally can't put the lid back on again. And for people who aren't familiar, you're talking about the BBC complaints procedure. You know, this is literally some completely mad person can call a number and just say, I just saw this person on the telly say this thing and I disagree with it and it has to be looked into. And I do wonder whether the platform of BBC Breakfast as this huge show that reaches millions of people has distorted this too. I have heard radio presenters on my local BBC radio station say much more opinionated things about Donald Trump than Naga Manchetti said there. I, I think in the interest of being constructive, BBC, if you're listening, here would be our, here would be my advice. Um, one thing that I think media entities have done in some instances, American newspapers, for example, do this quite a lot, is to have a public editor or an ombudsman who is an independent person outside of the organization whose function is to review listener or reader feedback or watcher feedback, viewer feedback, um, and determine from a kind of independent standard whether they have a point or not, basically. So it's not the organization policing itself. It's an independent entity or individual um, who takes that on. And it feels like that's probably in these murky waters where the BBC has to manage both wanting to attract and manage a diverse group of staff and also a very inflammatory environment um, with very heightened politics. It's probably in their interest to take it out of their own hands. Isn't this part of the BBC's struggle with what impartiality means? Because as we've seen from the Brexit debate and other things, they really struggle with issues that are not black and white, as it were. So they 
they do that false equivalence thing of here's a man who believes the world is round, so therefore we must have a man who believes yeah. the world is flat. And they do. And now you can't be impartial about racism, right? You, you can't be impartial about you know public stoning. There are various things that we all have to agree, don't we, in a civilized world, are a bad thing. But I think I, I think you're absolutely right. And with with the benefit of uh, to, to to give a little bit of credit to the BBC, I don't think that they're suggesting the because Naga made comments about racism. That's what should be. Um, should be reprimanded. I think what they're saying is that her comments about Donald Trump as a politician and whether or not he is racist, that's what breached the editorial guidelines. And I think that they've not clearly demonstrated that that's what they were trying to put a pause on. I also think it's a shame, like Nanga Manchetti is such a good broadcaster who's been doing <laughs> that job so well for such a long time that now, forever, when you Google her name, it'll be her name, Racism Rao. You know, which is a legacy that's completely not her fault. Which is quite a problem for other, as you say, BME sta- uh, BAME staff in, who, who in the network. talk up. Yeah. Let's talk about audio advertising now. And branded podcasts are more effective than TV, according to new research from Audio Activated. Trevor, remind us who Audio Activated, or to give them their full name, Audio Colon Activated, are. I have no idea who they are. (laughs) Thank you for that question. They are the BBC Global News Brand Content Division. Are they indeed? Which just makes me feel a bit creepy. Well done for the BBC uh, for doing some work that says that advertising is really successful in audio. I suppose, well, they would, wouldn't they? Because they do need to make uh, money from this. I think... um, what it says to me is that it's so easy to skip advertising in every medium that it's a miracle when anybody hears an advert at all. And in podcasting, I think largely because a lot of it is done by the presenter themselves, is therefore it has the feeling of being part of the content of the show. It's not just a, we'll be back after these messages. I think people do engage with them. And I can see why they would th- they would think that um, if you were trying to get a commercial message across, sticking it in a podcast would be, you know, more successful probably than sticking it on the telly. It's also that thing of, you know, once you've got your headphones on and you're doing something else, the ironing or whatever, are you going to whip your phone out to fast forward the ad, especially if, as Trevor says, it's contextualised like the rest of the show? That's a vision of at home with Ollie Mann. <laughs> it will be hard to shake. You have no idea how I listen to my podcast. Uh, but Karen, uh, it did say, didn't it? 94% of podcast listeners are doing something else mm. at the same time. That is reaching people that advertisers can't normally get to. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, obviously, as a podcaster, I would say this, but one of the reasons I love podcasting is because I know that I'm holding my audience for a long period of time. I mean, my stats show me that my shows are sometimes well over an hour, and I'm holding people for 50 minutes to an hour, just me wittering on. So, you know, I'm happy with that. People, it, it suits a different style of life, and it suits a type of audience that don't consume a lot of television media, for example. Um, commuters, for example, people who are in their cars, whatever. Um, obviously, that means it's harder for them to skip the ads, which is which is a benefit from that point of view. But I also think that uh, podcast advertising, and I don't monetize my podcast at this point, partly because I'm not sure which advertisers I want to work with. Um, but um, but podcast advertising has been really smart, and it's really interesting, and it takes you back to the early days of TV when you think about it. it used to be a particular brand would sponsor a show, and then you'd get the presenters of that show kind of just chatting about the brand. A lot of podcasters because it's in their own voice, they're very thoughtful about not just reading the script, but also throwing in some asides that feel personal to them. A lot of them will actually use the products, the podcasts I've listened to, they'll really give a thoughtful perspective on the on the product, which as a listener, I find much more valuable than just scripted content. So Except this isn't about podcast advertising per se. This is about branded content, or at least that's how the press release made this look. And speaking personally, 
honestly, none of my favourite podcasts are branded podcasts. Yeah. You know, I can see there's an opportunity there in, in, in the world. But the ones that I respond to are the ones that you're, you know, going to, Fine. which are the ones where people have made an ad sound a bit like the content they were making anyway. I, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I, I, firstly, when it comes to engagement, I think the reason that, that podcasts are doing so well in this space is that they're one of the very few mediums that is a literal one-to-one between the messenger and the person that's listening. I don't like... And I think I'm not alone in this. I don't like listening to podcasts when I've got other people around me. Mm. Like the idea of kind of putting a podcast on and everyone sitting around listening to it while you're doing your writing feels weird. That's It's different to radio. It's different to television. It's very much a, a very personal um, uh, experience, which means that advertising and brands feels personal as a result of that because they are talking to you. They're not talking to a room full of people. That subtle psychological change, I think, is quite powerful. But brands have come to this quite late because it's been such an organic space. Um, and as a result of that, they are playing catch-up and trying to basically build their own authenticity in this space. And at the moment, I think that they're seen as, a, as with significant and, and valid scepticism from the audience. Every time they see a branded podcast, they think that it's them jumping on a bandwagon. And until we see a a brand that is doing it and feels like they're doing it for real, which is why I think what, what you were saying about podcast presenters doing the, doing that work for them, until they can break that authenticity barrier, I think that they're going to have an uphill struggle into trying to make this work. Let's talk about digital news now. And the Times and the Sunday Times are the first newspapers on board for the UK launch of Apple's paid news service. Karen, can you explain to me why it might be that the Times and the Sunday Times appear to be letting Apple News Plus customers read their paper for £9.99 a month when a standard digital subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times costs 26 quid. Why would they do that? It's it's a great question from a um, what, what the heck are they thinking strategy point of view. From a consumer point of view, I'm re- really excited about it. Um, and I think it's really smart in the long run. I mean, basically what they're building is what's going to wind up being a sort of Spotify for news. Yeah. Get all the news you want, all the news content that you want. Or if you like, a Readly. Yeah. For uh, or, the same platform, Readly, Readly is already on. <laughs> um, but I, but you know, but delivered via Apple is going to give them a kind of scale and reach that they could never get. I suspect that's probably what the Times is reacting to is just the fact that it's Apple, which goes to show you how powerful um, Apple's presence in the landscape is going to be. Um, so I think it, I think it's a great innovation from a consumer point of view. Um, it might show a lot of weakness on the part of the Times, but I also think it's smart because I think people are less, much less wedded to media brands nowadays. They want individual content or they want a particular writer or a particular presenter or a particular program, they don't care that much where they get it from. So I think it's smart to dump all the content into one place. Problem is, in the long run, does that mean that the the intermediate brands just become unnecessary and you devolve to a world where you've just got creators and platforms? Yeah, it kind of makes sense to me if you're Esquire, you know, because even though they're uploading all of their magazine, you know, if you snack on a bit of Esquire content and you like it, you'd be more likely to buy the Glossy Mag, which is definitely the best way of reading that content. But if you're the Times, Trevor, I mean, if the whole thing that's on the app is also on the Apple News app, you've just killed your own app, surely. I don't get it. Uh, I really don't. But I can sort of see that more people will join Apple than will go straight to the Times. So they will they will get a, a, a if you like a smaller percentage of a bigger pie. Yeah, and they'll still get the advertising because there's going to be advertising. That can get. we award News Corp the uh, um, Twaddle of the Week award <laughs> for uh, News Corp Chief Executive Robert Thompson said, and I'm quoting uh, from the Press Gazette here: "We are proud to partner globally with a company." 
that truly believes in the profundity of provenance. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, we'd all sign up to the profundity of provenance, profundity wouldn't we? Profundity of provenance would be a great band name. Uh, or, or a podcast. Or a podcast. <laughs> Let's start doing it now. We should totally do that. <laughs> Are you going to be subscribing for us? Copyright well, I think, that. I, I think it's important to note that this is... Uh, so, so Apple Music plus... Apple Music, sorry, excuse me. Apple... Uh, News. News Plus has launched already in America and they've done a similar sort of deal with the Wall Street Journal. Um, and there's been lots of confusion as a result of it. You are not getting the full paper. Um, what you're actually getting is, I think it's that day's editions and they will feed you stories from that day's edition of the paper. When you subscribe to The Times, you can search old stories, you can get more content from them. Uh, you can, it's a, it's a, my understanding is, well, I say this for the Wall Street Journal. If you're subscribed to the Wall Street Journal, you get the entire Wall Street Journal art, um, archive for you to search through, read yesterday's paper, etc. This is a feed like feedly but this is a feed of news of that day which will include the times and sunday times if they are mirroring the same model that they have in the us so i do think the two offerings are very different i think that apple's marketing machine demonstrates that they're going hey we're all talking about it as if you're getting a bargain that's a, almost a third of the price of of just that one newspaper but the reality is is that it's a very different experience than if you subscribe to those individual pieces of content um and that may leave some Readers disappointed. So things that simple things like if you are on Twitter and you click on a link for the Wall Street Journal, it will not open in your Apple News subscription, even though you think that you've got a subscription to the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. um, and you will be unable to search for that that story. There's, you have to kind of go around, go to a roundabout way to actually read that story that you've seen on Twitter, which kind of breaks the whole system of how people read news these days. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see how it will be received when it does launch over here. But my understanding is that there's still a little bit of work that needs to be done to make the user experience as good as it can possibly be okay if you want some more media news you do not need to open any other apps we'll be back with more after this a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode of the Media Podcast was recorded at Spiritland Studios in London's King's Cross. Spiritland Studios are run by Spiritland Productions, providers of professional audio solutions to TV, radio, 
and online, as well as their broadcast standard studio facilities that you can hear right now. Spiritland Productions also have a world-class OB vehicle for audio and video projects of any scale. Whether it's podcasting, outside broadcasting, or live concert recording, produce your next show with Spiritland Productions. Go to spiritlandproductions.com now. Time for some more media news now. Karen, Faraz and Trevor are still with me. And let's talk about the royal tabloid lawsuit. Big news. Is the Duchess of Sussex a victim of the tabloid press? Prince Harry certainly thinks so. Piers Morgan certainly thinks not. Uh, In a statement released this week, Harry describes his wife as one of the latest victims of a British tabloid press that wages campaigns against individuals with no thought to the consequences. So, Karen, the couple have filed a High Court claim against Associated Newspapers after the Mail on Sunday published a handwritten letter that Meghan sent her father in 2018. Do you think she has a case? Well, I don't know the legalities of it, but it's certainly gross, isn't it? I mean, I haven't loved the way the media has treated Meghan, obviously. As a partisan American, uh, (laughs) I I look to her and think there, but, you know, not that I would ever marry a prince, but... um, Not yet. Not yet, no. Sorry, honey. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, folks, already married. Um, But yeah, I haven't loved the media treatment of her. I'm not sure to what extent that rises to the level of being a suable offence. So... You know, for this letter, it's a private letter. I think legally um, she remains the copyright holder of the letter, which she wrote. So I think you've got some legal arguments there. Um, But clearly there are legal arguments, you know, on the other side in that her father circulated the letter to the newspapers. It's not like they went digging around in her bins. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because I think what to me comes out, there's been a lot of accusations that the press has been behaving in a racist manner towards Meghan Markle. I think they've just been applying the exact same level of ruthlessness to her that they apply to every everybody every other member of the royal family and it looks particularly awful when you see it directed at her that's my perspective i think it's difficult for me at this point to see that they have much of a strong case and i wonder if they're sending this more as a signal to say just hey guys back off yeah i mean that signal's been very strongly sent hasn't it for us i don't know if you saw there was also this story they took on the sun because they published a story that implied that Meghan and Harry had asked junior staff not to park on the front of their front drive. Uh, and then The Sun published an apology on page two, saying, or offered to publish an apology on page two, saying, oh no, Meghan and Harry hadn't issued that dictum, it had come from someone else. I mean, it's all quite yeah. unimportant. I, I mean, I, I don't think it would surprise any of your listeners to hear that I'm not a huge tabloid, <laughs> like, royalist press reader. I, I do, every time I have kind of venture into that world, I find it really weird mm. um, because it's really clear to me that they have decided that Meghan is a villain mm. yeah. um, and she's a villain of the royal family and therefore we need to vilify her. And that is obviously having a, you know, a, a reaction uh, with click-throughs and, and you know, the clickbait or the, you know, pick, people picking up newspapers and purchasing them when they see a story, a negative story about Meghan. Um, and, and the public are either responding to that or, or they're fueling that fire, depending on where your opinion of where the, the, uh, the media cycle begins. But I, I think that there's a, um, a real sense that for Meghan, it is different. I think it's it is to do. I think it's actually to do with both the fact that she's American mm. and the fact that she comes from the celebrity world and the fact that she 
is of uh, an ethnic minority, and it's almost like a, a triple a triple threat to the monarchy. Um, and I, I there's all that, that, and also she doesn't follow the rules, the quote unquote, the, the kind of etiquette. Like for example, she decided not to give birth in the hospital where everybody thought she should give birth in, as if it's anybody's business where a woman gives birth. Okay, but, know, but we know, Trevor, sorry, that what, what the what the tabloids have always done is make up a lot of crap about the royal family on the basis that the royal family never sue. So if they start suing on the stuff that is genuinely untrue and groundless, fine. But then the implication will be, oh, they didn't sue us on this one, so that one must actually be true. This well, could play might, badly. That might them. be the case. I mean, it's very hard, isn't it, if you're a celebrity, and that's what they are, to, on the one hand, in the very same week, in fact, say, could we please have Nicholas Witchell and all these other press people follow us around South Africa because we want to make the story ourselves. But then, on the other hand, we don't want to be covered in this negative way as well. It's, it's hard to balance that, which I think a lot of celebrities have, have come across in the past. But on the other you know, the third hand, if you like, the uh, associated newspapers are the enemies of the people, are they not? They are a pernicious influence, and I hope they lose their case. Mm. Well, sticking with uh, DGMT, <laughs> uh, they have been invited for exclusive talks to buy JPI Media, which is the owner of the Eye paper. Um, they tried to buy the Eye last year for £24 million. They want to remember what it's going to cost them now? £75 million is the asking price. Would you pay £75 million for, uh, to buy the Eye? It was fifty p last time I checked. I was going to say I thought it was twenty p, wasn't it? Um, I think I think this is this is uh, there's three stories in this. The first is how do we feel about the Daily Mail buying the eye? How do we feel about the Daily Mail buying anything? I think there's always a visceral reaction to that from certain members of the uh, uh, the London metropolitan bubble. But Um, what the public actually don't necessarily appreciate is they also own the metro. They they also own the metro, and the eye was made in the same building as the Daily Mail. Exactly, and and so I think that what what that to me says is actually they are quite good at running papers. I think that they. They run the, the Daily Mail for want of your politics or, or your opinion on on the paper. They it is a very well, well run paper. They've done the best job of of um, online than any newspaper has done worldwide. Uh, the uh, the Metro is the same. They, they're the only people that survived the kind of free sheet wars, and I think they did, they've done a very very good look. Um, uh, they've done a very good job with that paper as well um, from a business point of view. So it, it only goes to say that they'll probably do a very good job with the eye to continue um, moving that. Uh, to be the success story that it's been so far and 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 continue that legacy. So it, it makes sense to me. Um and I think that they they probably um will be able to continue to uh to, to make people purchase what is seen as an outdated medium. Okay, briefly on this, but I just have to say it doesn't make any sense to me. I've never understood why the eye has this kind of hype behind it. Like they sort of briefly reinvented a tabloid quality newspaper, but then killed off the independent by doing it. Mm. And why would I buy it? And what's their digital presence? They haven't even got a good web address. I don't understand it. I don't know what they stand for. I don't know why it's like a media interest, the eye. Uh, It's not going to exist in 10 years. Just one observation, though. I'm surprised how often I find myself landing on copy in the eye that somebody who I follow on Twitter has decided is is something I should read. And I, I wouldn't naturally go there, and yet I find myself being there. Can I have a word about The Athletic, by the way, which is a fantastic thing. And you were saying, Karen, about how uh, consumers are going to go straight to the writers without the um, the intermediary, if you like. I suppose Athletic is a an intermediary, but it's a it's brilliant sports journalism. Of this, the is, sort... is this a new football thing where they've nixed a journalist from all the other papers. Yeah, yeah. it's not just football. There, there, right. there, there's other sports involved. Yeah, right. so you go on and you say, I'm interested in you know 
Arsenal but not Chelsea or something and that's fantastic so you never have to read about Chelsea <laughs> I, I guess that's the best thing ever yeah. <laughs> I'm counting but up no, references just now br- absolutely brilliant writers yeah. uh, Scientology baiting secret leaking investigative journalist who has announced his departure from the BBC after 17 years John Sweeney correct yes with a plug for his new book no less in the tweet where he resigned which was quite amusing oh savvy um, although you know did he resign or was he pushed was a lot of the Twitter debate straight well that was afterwards. the question that um, Evan Davis asked him on PM and what was the answer I missed well that. the answer was I think I'm uh, right in quoting this the, the answer was ooh <laughs> good question <laughs> So John Sweeney's had a very confrontational style for a very long time. I mean, I think of his name and I think of him losing his shit with those Scientologists all those years ago. And that's the thing you remember, isn't it? Um, Do you think there's a place for that kind of um, mad dog journalism at the BBC anymore? I wish and hope that there there is. Because I think the BBC will be the poorer if it doesn't allow campaigning journalists. And I do worry, actually, that if the Sweeney's of this world are pushed out and the Peter Taylors find it harder and the Michael Cricks can't work for the BBC, what is the BBC for? I mean, I loved, you know, like going back to Vincent Hanna doing election coverage. This was really strong opinionated stuff. And the argument always at the BBC was, yeah, 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 but it's balanced overall. So it might he, he might have a view but that will be balanced over a week or over a month of coverage. Nowadays, it seems as though you've got to have balance within every sentence, and that's 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 not so interesting, and it's not going to produce such revelatory journalism. It's also not necessarily, I wonder, about his attitude, but about the length of time it took him to put his stories together. <laughs> I mean, he'd work on one thing for a year, wouldn't he? Like proper investigative journalism. As good journal as good investigative journalism does. That's that's. I mean, there has to be a place for that. We yeah, need... and if that place isn't the BBC, where is it? <laughs> where is it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and is that something well, that you've... Well, it's on podcasting. Well, OK, mm. but even even BBC original podcasts don't have the budget of, let's say, NPR original podcasts, do they? So who has the budget for this stuff in this country now? <laughs> just, just complete silence. Well, silence. It's a bit like brands do. Brands do also advertising. <laughs> you know, look, who has the budget for these things nowadays? I think that they're... There is still power in what the BBC does. They are a licence fee state broadcaster and this is what they should be doing when it comes to kind of long-form uh, investigative journalism. And I think they, they still do it. I, I don't think that this is going to be the just because Sweeney's kind of gone off elsewhere to write a book, that means it's going to be the end of like investigative journalism at the BBC. I think that's complete nonsense. I, I think that there is a uh, there is continuing to be a space for really good uh, journalists or reporters or whatever it is you might want to call them to investigate stories uh, but when it, you know, my feeling is, is that when you look at someone like Louis Theroux and what he's done, um, you know, he did a, a documentary about Scientology as well mm. that probably got a lot more viewers to it, probably got a lot more um, uh, um, interest around it from, from a long-term point of view and is attracting younger audiences. And I think that we need to kind of really see where we can continue to find people that can tell those stories that will engage a wide audience as possible. And he's had, an, he's had a great career, but I'm more interested about who comes after him than, than what his career's been so far. Just on the question of who has the budget for it, I'm just going to put in a word for Netflix, who has been... An doing, international corporation, that's the answer. An international corporation, yeah. you know, but, and I would love for that kind of content to be delivered in a public service way, as the BBC is doing to everybody who doesn't need to be a subscriber. But in terms of who's producing excellent investigative content, amongst many other things, there's a lot of great stuff happening on Netflix, and, and it's good that it's out there. I wish that it were more widely supported. Well, speaking of quality television, Karen... There is just time for our internationally celebrated media quiz. 
The Emmy Awards handed out some serious hardware to British talent in LA recently, but let's see if our guests paid any attention. I'm going to pose five questions about the night's British winners. All you need to do is answer before your opponents do. You buzz in with your name when you think you've got it, so Karen, you'll say... Karen. Faraz, you'll say... Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And Trevor, you'll say... (laughs) (laughs) Old bloke. Okay. Let's go. How many trophies did Fleabag score? Buzzing with your name when you know the answer. Karen. Uh, Four. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) For a bonus point, can you name any of them? Uh, Let's see. Well, Phoebe Waller-Bridge won for Best Actress, beating Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Yes. Lead Actress in a Comedy Series. Lead Actress in a Comedy Series. Yeah. Although, which was, people said was a big surprise, but then Julia Louis-Dreyfus won won it every year forever. You can let Phoebe have it. Come on, Julia. Uh, any others? Um, did they win for... I think they best won for Best Comedy Series, did they? They did. Outstanding Comedy Series, writing for a comedy series and director for a comedy s- series. I'll give her the bonus point for that. You I'm keeping a Fleabag score. super fan over here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, for us, do you think, having just had the conversation we were having about the BBC not being able to afford things anymore, do you think UK fans should worry that Phoebe Waller-Bridge has now signed up yes. this exclusive deal with Amazon? Well, so firstly, my understanding is, is that Fleabag was a co-pro between the BBC and Amazon in the first place. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong with I think that's true. Um, so it'll be interesting to know if that is just a deal that they'll continue to do. So, you know, Amazon will partner up with somebody like the BBC for the next series of whatever that may be. Um, and I think that um, I'm also right in thinking that Killing Eve was a co-pro with BBC America. And- Excuse me, this isn't the quiz where you quiz no, me. Sorry. Um- <laughs> I've got the questions here. Right. But I, I think that's because you is don't that- know the answer, do you? <laughs> what, do what, you? I'm, what, what I'm saying is that if we're going to continue to invest in writers, you know, Duffer Brothers just signed a massive thing with Netflix as well. Um, and uh, and so have the guys who are behind Game of Thrones. Uh, I think that writers are becoming more and more of an asset and a commodity to these big streamers, um, of which we can't afford in this country. Okay. So I've been told in my ear that both the statements you made are true, but you don't right. get a bonus point for that because I mean- they weren't a question. Don't <laughs> well, come on with your own answers. In this quiz, is Phoebe Waller Brown. Um, <laughs> okay, question number two. Who won Best Supporting Actor in a Limited Series? Phoebe Waller-Bridge. <laughs> Buzzing with your name when you know the answer, yes, Faraz. Uh, Faraz, sorry, what was the question? Ugh. Who won Best Supporting Actor in a Limited Series? Yes. Uh, Karen? Yes. Was it Jodie Comer? No, Oh, actor, she won Best a- Gendered. Oh, actor, sorry. Man. Come on. Uh, Faraz, oh, wait, did it come about? Buzz, You're really Karen. close. Yes, Karen? Uh, I was going to say... Um, oh, I know you're thinking of the right guy. Yeah, Game of Thrones, right? No, no, right, okay. no you're completely wrong. No, it was no. Ben Wisher for ben uh, a very English scandal. Uh, all right, question three. Uh, remember, we're looking for Brits who won Emmys, right? What was the name of the Black Mirror episode for which Annabelle Jones Karen. and Charlie Brooker won Best TV Movie? Karen, yes. Bandersnatch. Correct. Yes, she's got three it. points, Trevor. You've lost this, let's be honest. Yeah. Um, well, I, I am, my only defence is I'm not trying. <laughs> <laughs> then, like Bandersnatch, you can now rewind this and then select the answers that you need to get to the responses. Uh, uh, question number four. Which British writer won Best Drama Series for his work on Succession? And rightly so, in my view, he says, padding out the pause. Come on. I've not seen Correct, Succession. Correct, Peep Show. You've not seen Succession. Oh, it's brilliant. It's Jesse Armstrong and it is bloody amazing, it's isn't fantastic, it? fantastic, yeah. Uh, all right, well, um, I mean, you've clearly won the quiz, Karen, but I'm going to pose you the, I'm going to pose you the fifth question anyway. Just for you. <laughs> <laughs> How many of the 27 awards had British involvement? We'll see this figure. It is quite staggering. What does British involvement mean? Well, as in, were basically British co-pros or British talent were absolutely front and centre. Shall we each take a guess? Yeah, go on. So, shall we say 15? I mean, the quiz is being rewritten as we play. <laughs> yeah, go on for us. Uh, I'm going to say Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go 18. Ooh, uh, you won again, Karen. It was 13. 
But 13 out of 27 is extraordinary. It doesn't call, include Chernobyl, which is a HBO show, really, but all British talent. But that is amazing, isn't it? Can I just make up a little point about the Emmys? Uh, like, British people, you really get really excited when you win American awards or, like, international awards. And, and it's so cute how excited <laughs> British people get about that. But, like, you know... There's a whole, yeah, it's fine to win BAFTAs too. <laughs> I know, and Americans don't give a shit when they no. win BAFTA, do they? They have no idea it's what like, it oh, is. It doesn't nice. even make the you news. Know, like, we we love confidence. it when Americans call us cute as well. That, <laughs> yeah, that makes us really happy. You can find some national confidence. Okay, well, it's that kind of confidence and can-do spirit that has won you the quiz, Karen, so congratulations. Uh, that is it for today. My thanks to Karen Robinson, Trevor Dan, and Faraz Osman. If you like what we're up to here on the Media Pod and you want to help us keep doing it, then consider taking out a voluntary subscription. Head to the Media Podcast slash donate and choose an amount to keep us going all year round. You can catch up with previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.